The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this evening to study your word. Father, we thank you for this study of Daniel that encourages us that in the midst of international turmoil, in the midst of uncertainty, that you are a God who is always faithful, always stable, and that no matter how uncertain and chaotic life may appear, we can always rely upon you. Father, now as we continue to study these things, we pray that you would help help us understand them. We may have a greater understanding of your plan and purposes in history. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's been a couple of weeks since we went through this material, and we are in a passage that is somewhat difficult. Uh, Daniel 11:36 down to the end of the chapter covers two sections. 36 to 39 covers the political and religious career of the Antichrist. Starting with verse 40, we shift to the military career of the Antichrist with a focus on uh, numerous invasions and campaigns that take place during the second half of the tribulation. Now, if you just look at verse 40 and following, it doesn't sound too complicated. The problem is when you try to fit those verses into a number of other passages in Revelation, Zechariah 12 and 13, uh, Joel 2, Ezekiel 38 and 39, that you run into some complications. I've been trying to work through various problems with that for off and on for about three months now and have not gotten to a point yet where I am at a point where I can stand up and say this is what the passage says or this is how these things go together. So we won't get that and hopefully, prayerfully, well, maybe I'll have a word of knowledge by next next Tuesday night, and it will come together. I uh, <clears throat> I know what position it is that I think is most likely, and that may be all that we can say at this point in time, 
is that this seems to be the best solution, but we don't know for sure what the exact how how these things really fit together. Well, we need to have a little review because last time we just didn't got through the introduction to the section, and it's been a couple of weeks, and I know that that in order to understand the some of the interpretive problems we have in the first four verses in 36 to 39, we have to uh, go back and make sure we understand the things that I covered last time. So let's start by opening our Bibles to Revelation chapter 13, 11 to 18. Revelation 13, 11 to 18. And in Revelation 13... We find a one of several descriptions in the book of Revelation of the two key leaders, the two satanic leaders in the tribulation, the first beast and the second beast. The uh, characteristics and career of the first beast are covered in the first uh, ten verses of the chapter, and then in verse 11 we have a second beast. The first beast comes out of the sea, which is a picture of the Gentile nations. The second beast comes out of the earth. And so we have to put this together in terms of an understanding of our passage. So let's just review some of the things that, that I looked at last time. First of all, we have a phrase that has been pretty much adopted and accepted. I think it could be challenged on some textual grounds. I'm not going to go there. But And that is the term Antichrist as a term for the first beast. And the reason I say that is that if you look at the verses where that term is used in 1 John 2, the context of 1 John 2, as we'll see this Sunday morning when we get there, and as we've seen before, having to do with Gnosticism, has to do with a false concept of the Messiah. That's a religious thing. Whereas the Antichrist, in terms of the first beast, is primarily, even though he certainly has a religious career, is primarily a political leader. It's possible that the term Antichrist, as John uses it, has more to do with the second beast in his career than the first beast. But we're faced with over 2,000 years of church history tradition where the first beast is referred to as the Antichrist. The leader of the revived Roman Empire is referred to as the Antichrist. So we will continue to go along with that terminology. But we have to understand just exactly what it means and what that term means. It is a compound word in the Greek, anti plus Christos. Christos is the term for anointed one or Messiah. And anti has the idea of substitution. Too often in English we look at it in terms of a Latin background where anti has the idea of against or a contradiction to. And that's not the idea. It has to do with a substitute Messiah. And last time we went through various titles given to the Antichrist in the Scriptures, Little Horn in Daniel 7, 9, or Daniel 7, uh, 8, 9, uh, the insolent king in Daniel 8.23, the prince who is to come in Daniel 9.26 and 27, the one who makes desolate in Daniel 9.27, the man of lawlessness, 2 Thessalonians 2.3, the son of destruction, 2 Thessalonians 2.3, lawless one, 2 Thessalonians 2.8, the beast, Revelation 11.7 and 13.1 through 10, the despicable person, Daniel 11.21, the strong-willed king, in Daniel 11.36, and the worthless shepherd in Zechariah 11. Those give us basically the characteristics 
of the first beast we will call the Antichrist. Then the second figure that we looked at last time is the false prophet. Now the false prophet, the false prophet is distinguished from the from the substitute Messiah. We have seen. I want to go ahead and let me skip through this slide. We saw, first of all, that Jesus warned of false Christ and false prophets. It's important. I'm building a case point by point here. There is a distinction in Jesus' terminology in Matthew 24, 24, between a false Christ and a false prophet. Those are distinct concepts. One is someone claiming deity, claiming uh, some sort of savior role. The other is someone who is a religious leader, a religious figure claiming divine uh, inspiration and ability to give divine revelation. So Jesus distinguishes between a false Messiah and a false prophet in Matthew 24, 24. Then the second thing that we saw was that in Revelation 13, 11 to 18, the second beast is a distinct personage from the first beast or the Antichrist, and he is a prophet or a spokesperson, a spokesman for the Antichrist. Let's look at the passage in Revelation uh, 13, 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and many think that because it uses the phrase gay here or earth or land, that that is an allusion to Israel, that Israel is often referred to as the land. So this would indicate that as the second beast comes up out of the land and the first beast came up out of the sea, the first beast is a Gentile, the second beast is a Jew. That's important to maintain these these distinctions because we're going to get, you'll see it come together when we get into Daniel uh, 11, 36, why this is important. And he that is the second beast exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, so he is a secondary power. His role is to bring worship to the first beast. His role is to authenticate the first beast through his various miracles. Not that the first beast also doesn't have various miracles, but primarily the second beast performs miracles for the benefit of the first beast. It goes on to say, causes the second beast causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs, so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he that's a duplication of the the fire coming down to consume the altar to Baal by Elijah in First Kings chapter 18. Uh, he uh, deceives those who dwell on the earth. So he is one who masters in deception those who dwell on the earth. If the phrase dwelling on the earth has the same concept here as Israel, then it shows that he is one who deceives the Jews. He deceives those who dwell in the land by the signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth or in the land to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. So the making of this image of the beast is the abomination of desolation. Just as Antiochus Epiphanes constructed a, a or erected a, an idol to Zeus and put it in the uh, Holy of Holies in the temple, which was the uh, type of the abomination of desolation, the 
second beast is going to have an image constructed that will also be placed inside the tribulation temple, and it's that uh, that that is referred to in Daniel and in Matthew 24 as the abomination of desolation. Verse 15, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. So a statue is somehow animated. It is brought to life. And this is a fantastic miracle that is going to win over many converts to the worship of the beast. That the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So there will be a mass slaughter of those who refuse to bow down and worship the beast. Verse 16, it goes on to talk in the rest of the next two verses about the economic aspect and causing all to wear the mark of the beast. So that is the function of the second beast, the false prophet. Now let's look at our second passage, which was in 2 Thessalonians 2. What we've established so far is there's a distinction between these two individuals, the, the first beast and the second beast. The first beast, beast claims deity. The second beast is going to bring worship to the first beast. In 2 Thessalonians 2.3 we read, let, um, let, me, let me back up here. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy. And last time I showed you that apostasy in the Greek means to depart. That's the root meaning of the word is departure. And it's interesting that in the first eight English versions preceding the King James Version, the word was translated departure rather than transliterated as apostasy. Now, you see, a translator avoids certain theological problems by transliterating a word. In a transliteration, as opposed to a translation, what you do is you take a word and you just bring it over into the other language. For example, one of the most egregious examples of this in church history is the word baptizo. Baptizo in the Greek, B-A-P-T-I-Z-O, if you look it up in any Greek lexicon, you look at the usage in classical Greek all the way up through Koine Greek, the word means to dip, plunge, or immerse. It's, it's signified identification. But the meaning of the word was to plunge or immerse something. So if you read that Jesus came to John and was immersed... In the Jordan, that's a translation. But if you are coming out of a medieval Roman Catholic Church background where you're sprinkling and you're not immersing, if you translate it, you're in trouble. You're in trouble for two reasons. You're in trouble, number one, because you were violating church dogma, which asserted sprinkling instead of immersion. But what happened in the Middle Ages, because there was an identification of church and state, is that when a child was born and you have a baby, that baby is sprinkled, and he at that point enters into the two spheres of church and state. So that the sprinkling wasn't just entry into the church and a pledge of salvation, it was also a sign of loyalty and citizenship in the state. 
Now, if you're saying that nobody should be sprinkled as a baby and that that was invalid, you're not just making a religious assertion. You're making a treasonous political assertion. That's why they were taken out and burned to death. So you don't want to, you want to avoid being burned at the stake. You want to avoid being drowned. That's what, that's what a Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli was the uh, great reformer, great Swiss German reformer. And when his uh, students realized this problem and shifted their position from sprinkling, infant sprinkling to adult believers baptism, well, because Zwingli was the head of the state there, he took them out, and the penalty was drowning. So he said, you want to be immersed? Well, I'll immerse you. So he held them under until they were dead. See, we live in such mild, bland times now. You know, back then, people really took their religious convictions seriously. Well, if you were going to translate baptizo, you would translate it immersed. But if you were a chicken and you didn't want to die, you took the chicken's way out, and you just transliterated it, baptize. Baptize isn't an English word. It's a Greek word, but you you avoid the whole issue by transliterating it into, into English. Well, the same thing happens with apostasia. The first eight English versions translated apostasia correctly as departure that these things can't happen or the Antichrist isn't going to be revealed unless the departure comes first. But they didn't quite understand what that meant. What departure? So they decided that since it's a little bit nebulous here, we'll just do the same thing they did with with baptize. We'll just transliterate the word as apostasy. And so now we have the word apostasy, which isn't an English word either. It's a Greek word, but they didn't translate it. And it should have been translated departure, which is the rapture. So that, that, that is the appearance of the Antichrist will not come unless the rapture comes first. And then the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God and object of worship. So what we have here is a clear statement that the first beast, the Antichrist exalts himself above every god and object of worship. Not the false prophet. This has to be the Antichrist because he's the highest god. When it comes to it, he's going to be the top god on the in the pantheon. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That means he's going to go in where that image is. That image is the Antichrist. He's going to claim deity and go into the temple. This isn't talking about the Antichrist because, you see, the Antichrist, I mean the false prophet, if this were talking about the false prophet, then that would contradict Revelation 13, which says that the false prophet is going to bring all the worship to the first beast as the high god in the religious worship of this tribulation religious system. Now, that set the stage for understanding uh, Daniel chapter 11 and being able to identify this king. We come to verse 36. So turn your Bibles now. Let's go back to Daniel 11, verse 36. Daniel 11, verse 36, and we read, Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god. 
Now, what does that sound like to you? This fits what is said in 2 Thess 2.4, that he exalts himself above every so-called God and object of worship. So Daniel 11.36 and 2 Thessalonians 2.4 are speaking about the same individual. The king will then do as he pleases, will exalt and magnify himself above every God, and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. Verse 37, And he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. Now, we come to a major interpretive problem here, and that is the identification of the king. The reason we have an interpretive problem is because uh, there are three views that are taken as to who this figure is. The first is that this is still Antiochus. This is basically the view of the liberals and of those who do not believe that this is predictive prophecy. The reason we say that it is not Antiochus, see, I not only want you to know what this passage teaches, I want you to understand something about why we say it's the Antichrist. Well, it's not Antiochus because there are statements made about the character of the king that are not true of Antiochus. He doesn't exalt and magnify himself above every every god. And where the text says, and we'll look at it in a minute, where it says he'll speak monstrous things against the God of gods, the word there for monstrous things is really wonderful or, or miraculous things. And the idea is he is going to perform miracles against the God of gods in order to show that he's more powerful. Antiochus never did anything like that. And third, the term the ignorant. The indignation is a synonym for Jacob's time of Jacob's trouble or the tribulation or Daniel's 70th week. And since Antiochus has historically passed from the scene and did not live into the, to the end of the indignation, this could not apply to him. So there are statements made about the character of this king which aren't true of Antiochus. The policies of this king, the fact that he'll show no regard for the gods of his fathers, or for the desire of women, and that he will magnify himself above all. Those are presented as if this is new information. This does not relate to the guy we just got through talking about up to verse 35. This is presented as new information. Third, historical matters are presented which do not match anything in Antiochus's lifetime. Fourth, the text seems to end with the expression of uh, the text back in verse 35, seems to end with the expression of Antiochus' hostility to the Jews. That seems to, 35 seems to wrap up everything it's going to say about the individual discussed in the northern king in verses 29 to 35. Furthermore, the terminology, the king, then the king should do according to his own will, is different from the preceding terminology, which is king of the north. Verses 29 to 34, the references to the king of the north, and now we have a new uh, term, the king, which indicates a shift of subject. And then in verse, if you look down at verse 40, we read, At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him. So in in the previous section, from 29 to 35, Antiochus is the king of the north, 
But the king of verse 36 is a distinct king from the king of the south and the king of the north. So he can't be the same as the king of the north up to verse 35, and then he can't be the king of the north up to 35, and then be distinct from the king of the north starting in verse 36. So obviously there's a shift. And what happened? And then lastly, the, the, this leader, this king, this king, is ruling during the, the worst time in Israel's history. Okay, second point in identifying the king here is there are some that identify the Antichrist with the king of the north, even in this last section. They'll say this is the king of the north, uh, and they base their view of the king of the north in the fact that that um, earlier in the passage, king of the north equals Antiochus. Antiochus is a type of the Antichrist. Therefore, king of the north equals the Antichrist. Furthermore, they will take this designation, and then they look at a couple of other passages, which, we'll, which we will examine later, that do refer to an individual. The king of the north is this person, but he's not the Antichrist. In Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5 and 12, in Isaiah 14, 24 to 26, and in Micah 5, 1 through 7, we're told that, that God is, there's going to be this other figure in the Antichrist called the Assyrian. And this Assyrian is going to bring judgment on Israel. That's the king of the north. He's also called the Assyrian. There's a couple of other titles for the king of the north as well in the, in the Old Testament. Now, some of you are familiar with Prof. Zane Hodges, who is a Greek professor, a stalwart in teaching the free grace concept. But Zane Hodges and several others have come up with this interpretation that this is the Assyrian. And in fact, he's published a um, he's published sort of a novel on the on the um, uh, tribulation where we have an Assyrian Antichrist. So that just sort of lets you know. I mean, these are not. As I go through this, I'm going to mention different dispensationalists. There is within dispensationalism a certain amount of a disagreement or uncertainty exactly how to label some of these things. This is this is sort of like a family squabble. These are not major issues and and things to get fully upset about. But just to be aware that you may hear of different positions when you read different different uh, popular popular books. I don't agree with that position because I think it's pretty clear that the little horn of Daniel 7 comes out of the Roman Empire. Furthermore, in Daniel chapter 9, we're told that it's the people of the prince who is to come who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D. The prince who is to come is related to the people who destroyed the temple. Since the temple in 70 A.D. was destroyed by the Romans, the prince who is to come must be a Roman. Therefore, he's not an Assyrian. So, uh, for those reasons, textually, remember, whenever you want to try to prove something from the Scripture, try to go into the Scripture, not just argue abstractly from doctrine. Um, the Antichrist must be European. Now, there's another option. This is the third third point, 
And that is that this refers to the second beast or the false prophet, that the king mentioned here refers to the false prophet, the dictator of Israel. Now, this view is primarily an older dispensationalist view that came out of the 19th century. It was held by John Nelson Darby. John Nelson Darby is the sort of the founder and modern systematizer of dispensationalism. One of the men at the uh, Conservative Theological Society meeting last week, who was a classmate of mine in the uh, doctoral program at Dallas many years ago, Mike Stallard, who's a professor of theology over at Bible Baptist Seminary in uh, Pennsylvania, uh, is just sent a, a book off to the publisher on the history of dispensationalism. And one of the things they're demonstrating in this book is that the major ideas in dispensational theology, a distinction between Israel and the church, premillennialism, even uh, cert- there are certain discoveries made in the last ten years uh, about uh, some various various uh Pastors and teachers going back to a man named Pseudo Ephraim in the 5th century clearly held to some sort of pre-tribulation type of rapture. In fact, I um, can't remember his first I think it was Edmund Morgan. Maybe I've got the first name wrong, but it was definitely Morgan who was the Baptist pastor who founded Brown University was had a pre-trib view of the rapture. So our those who disagreed with us, our theological enemies, uh, often accused us of inventing the pre-trib rapture with Darby, but now recent scholarship has demonstrated that to be completely false, that these ideas were all around, all the way back to the early church. But Darby was the first to come around and pull these different strands together and systematize dispensationalism. And Darby held that this held the view that the king here, was uh, the false prophet. Also, a German Jew by the name of Arno C. Gabeline, who came over here, family came over here in the 1880s to avoid the conscription of, uh, of Bismarck and the Kaiser in the Franco-Prussian Wars back at the end of the 19th century. Gabeline came over here and became a believer and was quite influential. He really had a handle on prophecy, at least as many of these things were understood by the late 19th century. In fact, uh, C.I. Schofield, who edited the Schofield Reference Bible, who probably did more to popularize dispensationalism than anybody else, Schofield said that, well, if I don't understand something, I always defer to uh, Gabeline because he is the expert. So Gabeline had a tremendous influence on not only his generation of, of uh, prophecy and students, but also on the next generation. Now, remember, Gabeline is speaking at the uh, what was called the Niagara Bible Conferences, and then you had Northfield Bible Conferences up in Massachusetts, and many of these prophecy-oriented Bible conferences in the late 19th century, a little over 110 years ago. And you had people speaking there like C.I. Schofield and his protege, Lewis Berry Chafer, who founded Dallas Theological Seminary. Now, Dallas Theological Seminary probably did more for the teaching of dispensationalism, and Chafer did, than anybody else. It's important to understand how these guys influence each other. Schofield, I love this quote. Schofield one time was talking to Lewis Berry Chafer, who was an ordained evangelist in the Presbyterian Church, and he said to him one day, uh, Lewis, I think you'd make a great teacher someday if you just had something to say. <laughs> and 
Chafer was humble enough to recognize the truth of that, and so he basically was taught and mentored by Schofield. And Schofield, of course, was very influenced by Gabeline. And Gabeline, in turn, also influenced Schofield. And as a result of that, this church has been influenced by uh, tremendously over the years by the teaching of Pastor Theme down in Houston. Well, in, in Pastor Theme's master's thesis on the Battle of Armageddon, he relies heavily on Gabeline. And so he also follows that view that this individual in, in uh, uh, Daniel chapter 11, 36 and following, is not the Antichrist, but it's the false prophet. Now, as, as Dr. Wa- the, the interesting thing is that even though Gabeline held that view, he didn't manage to convince either Schofield or Chafer of the view. Neither Schofield nor Chafer bought into that. They recognize the same problems that I've pointed out already, and that is that this passage is talking about the king exalts himself above every god. And if this is the false prophet, then you've got to find some other figure out there who's a higher god, and that presents an internal uh, contradiction between the various uh, passages. So there's... uh, a number of problems with it, both in terms of the text and, and comparing Daniel 11 with Second Thessalonians 2 and Revelation uh, 13, but also the, the, there's a methodological problem that both Darby and Gabeline had. And, you know, this is one that we all have to watch, and that is you don't start off with an, with an abstract question. What I mean by that is you don't start off with a question that's just separate from the text. Now, we come up with questions like this all the time, but it... It's often we ask a question that the Bible doesn't address specifically. It might come at it obliquely or from an angle, but it doesn't address it specifically. And then we think this question is so brilliant and so powerful that we try to force the Scripture into answering the question. And the question is, how is it that in the tribulation, Jews would follow a false Messiah, the Antichrist, who's not a Jew? Now, that sounds like a great question. How in the world are the Jew, would, would Jews be convinced to follow a non-Jewish substitute Messiah? Well, if, you, if your starting point is that question, then you're going to try to force the text to fit your question and the categories of your question instead of going into the text and saying, okay, well, the text makes it really clear that Daniel 11 is talking about a guy who sets himself up as the highest God. Second Thess 2 says he's the highest God. Revelation 13 says that the false prophet is secondary to the highest God, who is the Antichrist. So if that's what it's saying, now we have to explain this, what will happen in the, in the uh, tribulation. And what happens during the tribulation is the Jews come along, and you've got two categories of Jews in the tribulation. We'll really see uh, a lot about the remnant category in Daniel chapter 12. But the remnant are positive to doctrine, and they're responding to Jesus' claims as the Messiah. So they're positive to doctrine. They're going to accept Jesus as Messiah. But those that don't accept Jesus as Messiah, just like most Jews today, they're secular Jews. They have no commitment whatsoever to the Old Testament as anything other than just some other religious book that's not any better or any worse than the Bhagavad Gita or the writings of Confucius or the Quran or anything else. They're not committed to the Old Testament at all. They don't care. They're not religious one little bit. 
Now, they're going to be swayed because the false prophet, who is Jewish, is going to come on. And what did I point out in Revelation 13? He deceives the people in the land. And he is going to deceive them and somehow convince them that the Antichrist, who is clearly the Gentile, that he is the one who is there to worship and that he is the, the Messiah. So somehow he's going to convince them of that. I don't understand how, but but through his miracles, through the signs and lying wonders performed by the Antichrist, as mentioned also in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, they're going to substantiate these claims. Now, the fourth view, which is the view that I hold and the view that that uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum holds and C.I. Schofield, Lewisbury Chafer, John Walvoord, Leon Wood, uh, and you'll also it's uh, it's the view that and I'm going to bring these names in because of where we're going to go in the second part. Uh, Tim LaHaye, and that's the view that you'll find in the Left Behind books, and uh, Tommy Ice all hold to the view that the figure in 36 is the first beast, the Antichrist. We see this, and our support for this is based on the fact that it best fits the overall context of the passage and the context of the Scriptures. First of all, he exalts himself above every god, but in Revelation 13:12, the false prophet or the second beast exalts the first beast. So there must be a distinction there. Second, in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, we saw that the Antichrist exalts himself above every god, just as the king in Daniel 11.36 does. Third, the king in Daniel 11.36 is said to enter the beautiful land down in, or the glorious land in verse 41, Daniel 11.41. If he's the false prophet, he would already be in the beautiful land. That's the term for, for Israel. If he's a false prophet, he would already be there. That's his base of operations. So... The king has to enter into uh, Israel in terms of the beginning of these military conquests. So he's not already there. That's not his base of op- operations. So the conclusion is that that in terms of consistency, in terms of comparing Scripture with Scripture, it's best to refer to Daniel 11.36 as the Antichrist or the, of the tribulation, the first beast, the man who will try to do what Christ alone can do, and a man who will obtain the allegiance of most men on the earth. Now that's the first problem we face here, and we solve that. The second thing is has to do with time, and we know that there is a temporal break or a time break or a time gap between Daniel 11:35 and 36. Daniel 11:35 talks about is a historical reference uh, up through Daniel 11:33 or 11:32. It's really talking about the the uh, and historical fulfillment in Antiochus Epiphanes, and then in 33 to 35 it talks about the continuing trend through the end of the age of Israel and one that would go on through the church age, and that is uh, the refining process, that there would be martyrdom, there would be those who are believers who would be persecuted, and there would be uh, purification until the time of the end, and that is a technical term for Daniel's 70th week or the last seven years of, uh, of Israel's time period, the tribulation. 
Now, there are precedents for saying they're breaks. See, there are people who always come along and say, where are you dispensationalists coming along just chopping verses in half and making distinction? You'll say one verse refers to one period, then you put a 1,000 years or 2,000 years in between uh, the, the breaks, and then you come back and, and uh, constantly breaking up the Scripture like that. So where do you get the precedent for doing something like that? Well, Daniel chapter 2 verse 40 makes a break between verse 40 and verse 41. There's a clear, clear break there. Also, uh, Daniel 7.23, there's a clear time gap between 23 and 24. And Daniel chapter 9, there's a clear time gap between 9.26 and 9.27. And I think there's a, there's a clear time gap between 35 and 36 and Daniel 11. In Hosea 3.4, there's a break before Hosea 3.5. And the classic one is the one the Lord referred to in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. As he stood up in the synagogue to read, he read from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, where he read, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of our Lord. And then he stopped and he sat down, right in the middle of the verse. But the next phrase says, and the day of vengeance of our God. That's tribulation. Jesus sat down, cut that verse off halfway through, because there's a gap of at least 2,000 years between the fulfillment of the first part of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2a, and the second part of verse 2. So there are clear precedents in Scripture where there are these time gaps, where the prophets of old, looking ahead, didn't see these valleys between the major events that took place uh, in Scripture. So from Daniel 11:36 on, the text is no longer describing anything that has already happened in history, but it is describing something that is yet future. Jesus himself interpreted this same material to be yet future in Matthew 24:15 and following, where he warns the Jews about the seeing the abomination of desolation in the future. He was, in Matthew 24, Jesus said, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, see, it's not past. He's saying it's future. When you see this in the future, the abomination of desolation, that's that image the false prophet constructs and brings to life in the temple. Uh, when you see that standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get things out that are in the house. Let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and those who nurse babies in those days. But pray that your flight may not be in winter on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation. That's a technical term for the second half of the tribulation, a great tribulation. It intensifies in the second half. Why? Because Satan and the demons are cast out of heaven. Halfway through the tribulation, they're going to be walking around on planet Earth. They're going to be visible. It is going to be a bizarre time. It's going to be vastly different than anything we think of. When we go through some of the judgment passages and the cataclysms that happen meteorologically and in terms of the sun being darkened, the moon turning red, all of these global catastrophes are going to turn that that seven-year period into one of one disaster after another. The 
you know, just as a side note, the news media won't be able to, to editorialize much anymore. They'll just be too busy reporting what's happening. How refreshing that will be. Oh, that's just my opinion. That's not doctrine. Okay. Then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. Now, the sad thing is that people are coming along, uh, some interpreters call preterists. Preterists, we were introduced to that by uh, Tommy a few years ago, and he was here for a prophecy conference. Preterism is the idea that all of these events were really fulfilled in the past. They were fulfilled in 70 A.D. This is just sort of secret code kind of allegorical language for um, to, to indicate the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And so they teach that the tribulation took place between, well, some of them will say between uh, 65 uh, A.D. about 66 and a half, halfway through the year, 66 A.D. and 70 A.D., because that's where they're going to put those three and a half years. And they'll get three and a half years in there, and then the, then the Lord came back in 70 A.D. You all missed it. Now, Jesus came back. That's what happened in 70 A.D. Jesus came back, and we're now living in the millennium. Now, I know... But there are people who believe that. There are even, there's even a group called full preterists who believe that we're beyond the millennium now. That was only a thousand years. We're in the eternal state. I'm serious. And they are winning converts. And if you don't keep up with stuff like that and you turn on your television or radio and you watch some guy, you're going to get sucked into that because that's what's happening. There are some big names among Bible teachers who are, and I'm talking about conservatives. I'm not talking about the radical, charismatic, Pentecostal fringe that's bouncing off the walls on television. I'm talking about some of the more stable, uh, respected guys that came up in the uh, 70s and 80s, and yet now they are being uh, sucked into this preterist position. Well, let's look at the career of the Antichrist as we have it here in uh, Daniel uh, 1136, the king shall do according to his own will. He is completely independent of any authority. He is rejecting the authority of God, and he is setting himself up to be his own God. That's the thrust of the second clause. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every God, every known God, every pantheon, every religious system. So, in, ev- in effect, he is going to invent a new Religious system. This isn't going to be, he'll probably take elements out of many other religious systems like this guy Joseph Campbell has who uh, was a, uh, a sort of a mentor and guru for George Lucas who's done the Star Wars movies. Now, if you haven't seen Joseph Campbell, uh, I can't watch him for more than more 30 seconds without getting bilious. Happened to run into him on a on a PBS station not long ago, somebody had asked me the question, do you know who Joseph Campbell is? So I saw this guy on on a PBS, and what he has done is he thinks that all the religious systems all relate to various different mythologies. And he's, I think he's written a book called The Power of Myth, something like that. And so he wants a new religion where he just sort of amalgamates all the world religious systems. They're all equally true, and they all blend together as one. Well, he is a major uh, mentor and influence on George Lucas, which is, you know, when you blend everything together, what you end up with is is just sort of a mishmash that's pretty gray. And that's kind of what's happened in the latest Star Wars movies, is the more you get into the Force, it's there's no right or wrong. Everything's just sort of the same gray color. 
And it's, you know, the great movies, the group movies where you have a clear definition of right and wrong and good and bad and hero and, uh, and villain. But see, the, the hero, sometimes the villain with this, with the, with, uh, Darth Vader, he's first a good guy, then a bad guy, and nobody knows quite to do with him, and your kids are going home thinking, Anakin Skywalker, for those of you who don't know, that's Darth Vader when he, before he became bad, that he's the hero. Then he becomes evil. And now your kids are, are glorifying this guy that's going to later become evil, but that's because this whole religious framework that George Lucas has bought into is so, so fluid and fuzzy. Now I enjoy all the Star Wars movies and I'm not one to jump up and down and say don't take your kids to this, but at least take your kids, teach your kids to think critically when they see stuff like this so they can pick up on these, on these uh, various uh, emphases and nuances. So he's going to have a, a new religious system that probably takes, borrows a little bit from everybody so he can try to make everybody happy. And he will exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. He shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods. And here we have the term in the Hebrew, El Elim, which is a term referring to God. The term El is the generic term in Hebrew for God. The specific name of God is Yahweh. Uh, you have two other terms that are used, L meaning just God, like our God with a lowercase g, and then Adonai, which just means Lord and can also mean Master. So when uh, Daniel uses the phrase the God of gods, he's talking about uh, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the high God who created all things. So he's going to speak blasphemies against the God of gods. And and that's what the New King James says, but the New American Standard translates it, he will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. And the Hebrew word there is the one that I did not transliterate on the overhead. It is uh, niflaot. Niflaot, and that would look something like this, N-I-P-H. L apostrophe O T. And this is uh, from the root pa'al, which has to do with miracles. And so the best translation here of of, of uh, Niflaot is that he will uh, speak miraculous things against the God of God. So the idea is that he's going to claim the ability to uh, perform miracles that are superior to God's miracles, and he's going to duplicate all of the miracles of the Old Testament, and this will deceive many. This is affirmed in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, that the one who is coming uh, is the one is in accord with the activity of Satan, and he will be affirmed with all power and signs and false wonders. And with all the deception, verse 10, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So the Antichrist is going to be performing uh, powers or miracles and signs and false wonders, not just the false prophet. And then we go on to read, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed is done. 
And the word for indignation is the Hebrew word za'am, Z-A-A-apostrophe-A-M. It's sort of a soft breathing mark. It's a, I mean, soft guttural za'am. And it refers, it's a technical term for the tribulation. For example, in Isaiah 10, verse 5, we read, Woe to Assyria. This is a reference to that Assyrian leader who's the king of the north. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. Za'am. That's talking about the tribulation. And so this is a reference to this king of the north that we're going to see later in Daniel 11. He uh, has an Assyrian background. Isaiah 13.5, they are coming from a far country. From the farthest horizons, the Lord and his instruments of indignation. That's that word za'am again, that the Lord is going to bring them down to destroy the whole land. That takes place in the tribulation. Isaiah 26.20, come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a while until indignation, za'am, runs its course. So all of these passages talk about the tribulation. And again, in Daniel 8.19, and he said, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. Notice how in the context, the period of the indignation is defined as the appointed time of the end. So that is a technical term in the Hebrew for the tribulation. Then we read, uh, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has determined shall be done. Then we go on to read in verse 37, He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. Notice the repetition from verse 36. The Holy Spirit wants us to make sure that we understand he will exalt himself above every God. Now, what does he mean by these phrases here? I want to skip through some verses I had on the overhead. The desire of women, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. Now, this is a word phrase that has really confused people because the, the Gabalines, the, the, the Darbys, those who would claim that this is the Jewish false prophet would claim that the term gods of his fathers is a Jewish term. But primarily in the Bible, the phrase, when it's the God of your fathers, the, the word God is Yahweh. It is not Elohim as we have here. Usually the expression is Yahweh of the fathers, as in Exodus 3:15 and 16, Exodus 4:5, Deuteronomy 1:11, Judges 2:12, and a host of others. I just didn't want to go through all of them, but there's there's probably 15 or 20 different references where in the English you have the phrase God of his fathers, but in the Hebrew it's Yahweh. Here we have, we don't have Yahweh, we have Elohim of my fathers. Now this phrase is used one other time in Daniel, in Daniel 2.23, to refer to God. But it most likely in the context here is referring to, should be translated as a plural Gods. Many times in the Psalms, Elohim doesn't refer to God. It, the I am ending is a plural, and it can be translated in its generic sense as gods. So it should be translated, he shall regard neither the gods of his fathers. Remember, if this is the Roman Antichrist, then whatever the ancestral gods are, and if in our context it seems pretty likely that that would refer to Christianity, 
and Roman Catholicism perhaps, but some form of Christianity, that he is going to have no regard for the traditional gods of his ancestors, and then secondly, nor for the desire of women. Now, people always come up with the fact, does this mean he's a homosexual, or does this mean he's a celibate? And that's not what the term means. You know, the big joke was that, well, it couldn't be Bill Clinton, because he doesn't, it says the Antichrist wouldn't have the desire of women. But that's not what this means. The term desire of women is sort of a technical code word used in the Old Testament for the Antichrist. The Hebrew word is hemdah, H-E-M-D-A-H, hemdah. And it's used a number of places just generally for desire, but in two places it's a key word for the, for, I mean, for the, for the Messiah, the hope of the Messiah. In 1 Samuel 9.20 we read a difficult passage in context. The first part doesn't relate to this. But the second part is and is starting down right here. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel. That's the New American Standard translation. But literally the phrase hemda in that verse is in the genitive or the construct case in the Hebrew, and it should be translated, for whom is all the desire of Israel. And it's for them, for Israel, is all the desire of Israel, and that's referring to the Antichrist, I mean to the Messiah. Uh, Haggai 2.7 is also another phrase, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And there's a technical term for Jesus is the desire of all nations. They look forward to the Messiah. This was the desire of women in Israel because the Jewish women looked forward to the birth of the Messiah and they all hoped that they would be the mother of the Messiah. So this phrase, he will have no regard for the desire of women, that's a code word for the Messiah. He will have no regard for the Messiah, nor regard any God. Notice that fits with the context. He won't regard the God, gods of his fathers, nor the desire of women, i.e. the Messiah, nor regard any god, for he shall exalt himself above all. But in their place he shall honor a god of fortresses, not forces, but fortresses. And this is an important phrase. Dave Hunt popularized the idea that this is, was the god of forces, and um, as if it's reference to some New Age God. Back in the 80s when the New Age was popping up all over everywhere, you ran into several people going rushing to Daniel 11.38 and saying that this is a God of forces, like the, the God in Star Wars, the, the force. And so they were trying to make this connection there. But that's not what this refers to. This is the Hebrew word, ma'uzim, ma'uzim. And this word is a word that is used to refer to God many times as our fortress. And it looks like this, uh, Ma-Uzim, M-A-U-Z-I-M. And it has to do with a secure place, a fortification, or a fortified city. So he's saying he's going to honor the God who brings security. That's the idea here. This is what he is offering. Remember, in the context of the tribulation, when you have, when you have 
asteroids hitting the earth, when you have a third of the water being turned bitter, when you have a third of the water turning to blood, when you have pestilence and disease, when you have this, the sun and the moon being dark, when you have, when you literally have God making war against humanity, what do you think is going to be the number one desire of most people? We just had the World Trade Center fall down and everybody screaming for security. What do you think it's going to be like when something like that happens every single day? People are going to want security. So he is going to uh, honor a God of fortresses, a God who is going to supply security for mankind, and he's going to offer a pseudo-security to mankind. And he's going. this God of, of security, of course, is Satan. And this is a God which his fathers did not know, and he will honor him with gold and with silver and costly stones and treasures. Now, how did ancient man honor their gods? By taxes. They would increase taxes and put all the money into the temple. So he's going to increase taxes, raise money in order to uh, build up a huge army, armaments, everything, so that they can protect the human race against God. Because look at what God is going to be doing. Revelation 6.12. I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. The whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island is moved out of their places, the earthquakes. And the kings of the earth and great men, the commanders and the rich and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. So there's going to be a time uh, when they are seeking security from God who is making war on mankind during this, this tribulation. But it's still a time when God's grace is extended and millions will be saved because of the grace of God and the fact that Christ died for all their sins, no matter how horrible they would be. Well, that describes the Antichrist's religious career and his uh, religious emphasis. And next time we'll come back and look at verse 39 and following uh, down to verse 45 where we focus on his um, military career. Verse 39, he will act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. So he is going to promote the worship of Satan. And there you have the satanic trinity of the Old Testament, Satan, the false prophet, and the Antichrist. We'll come back and look at that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to look at these things and to see what will take place during the tribulation. Father, we are thankful that we will not be here for that. We're thankful for your grace, Father. We pray that you would encourage us knowing that despite all of the horrible things that will take place then, all of, the cert- all of the certainly horrible things that could happen in our own lives now, we know that you are still in control and that we can rely upon you in every situation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.